You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. Music has always been like the tool for not just escape, but of like empowerment, of of travel, of just transcending. So I take that to heart, I think, with, with what I make and I wouldn't call my music Afrofuturism or like even my aesthetic that, but it is in my heart and it is thing I think about when I make and hope people can absorb that and feel like inspired and empowered by it. My name is Spelling. I am an artist based in Berkeley, California. I am putting out my album, The Turning Wheel, June 25th. It's with Sacred Bones Records. It's been an ambitious piece of work for me, and I'm just really happy to have it out there. I always wanted to be a lover, but I can take the pain. Spelling, spelled with three L's, is the moniker of substitute teacher Christia Cabral. She's an experimental artist who came into her own after moving to Oakland and finding her community amongst the artists in the East Bay music scene. Her neo-soul vocals might hark back to the 70s, but her sonic influences are much more diverse and unconventional. Spelling's first two albums, Pantheon of Me and Maisie Fly, had haunting ambient soundscapes and struck a chord with critics and alt audiences. The release of her third album was delayed for more than a year after the pandemic hit. She was upset initially, but then took it as a sign to adapt and grow. She returned to the finished songs and started expanding on their lyrical themes. The album's title, The Turning Wheel, is a meditation on life's various cycles. And it's her most expansive work to date. Her sonic palette has grown in step with her confidence and the fantastical worlds she continues to build for fans to escape into. But before we hear more about her world building, Spelling reveals her sometimes difficult journey of learning to even want to sing again. What was it like for you growing up in Sacramento? I was an extremely shy, sort of just oddball personality. I didn't have friends. I didn't feel safe in a lot of spaces. I didn't know who my people were. You know, like I was just, this is typical for a lot of people, especially people of color, people who are alt, you know, the things that I was interested in made me weird to be a brown person who was interested in weird music and just an alternative sort of thing was strange. So I didn't feel like I had my own voice. I felt very um, just sort of silent and not able to kind of step into what I dreamed about or what I wanted for myself. I was always interested in music and singing at a young age. And that kind of just dissolved away as I went through adolescence and went to middle school. I was like, no, I'm like, paralyzingly shy now. <laughs> I can't do stuff like that. Um, I think it was just always there, though, um, the fantasy element, the escape element of creating, of writing stories, of making songs. Like, I really felt at home there. 
we're kind of very rooted right this moment in the Zoom screen and what we're doing. But I wondered if you could take a moment and take a pause and take me back to maybe what a perfect day would have been like for you, something that just makes you feel good. I think the first thing that pops into my mind is when I would visit my grandfather and they had a pool there and I was just constantly in that swimming pool over the summer. (laughs) There's just very like precious warm memory and like simple memory. I love being in water and getting to like submerge and it's hot out there. So (laughs) the beauty of Sacramento that I realized that heat, when it breaks over, the sun's going down, like it's like the perfect moment when it's so hot and then it breaks up over and the sky is all light pink. It feels good to be walking around outside and people just go outside to hang out on their porches and cool off. I love that about Sacramento. So did you spend a lot of your summers just in that pool all day? Yes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so what is a, a memory from your childhood that is kind of unpleasant that maybe you don't even like to think about? Being in public school as a shy person, um, middle school era, <laughs> I'm sure for everyone is really awkward and I don't think anybody thinks about that time. And it's like, that was the greatest. (laughs) Um, But it was particularly rough for me. That was where I think I went into the deepest mode of just, I uh, felt like an avatar. I feel like I'm just floating around and unable to kind of be present in my body and um, be confident in this, this world. So I felt very detached during that time in my life. And that was rough. And the sort of education or like support that I wish that I would have gotten at that time through school, just like learning about the important things (laughs) that I I learned about in later education would have maybe been a source of like comfort then just like identity politics and just resources for um, Mm. navigating real world things. So there's that strange sort of disconnect of being a young adolescent at that time. Before you became so terribly shy and you were singing, you know, so you you must have had that point, you know, when we're, we're little before we learn that everyone's looking at us and judging us. <laughs> Did you have songs at that age that you kind of like singing or where would you find a space to sing if, if you were shy? Where would you hear your voice? Yeah. Well, it kind of all shut down once I did get that self-consciousness. But before that, I was singing everywhere. My grandfather owned a barber shop in Sacramento. So I, my dad would drop me off there sometimes for him to watch me while he was at work. And so I'd be at the barber shop and I would sing to people, like getting their haircuts. And I would help out, you know, like sweeping up the hair, just looking at magazines <laughs> and then do a performance, just like sing for people any kind of family occasion. I had my portable karaoke machine (laughs) and I was really into Space Jam. So I had the Space Jam soundtrack and I was like, welcome to Space Jam. All right. You know, like it was just really funny. And there's home videos of me with that. It came with like these little headphones that had like the characters on the side. And I was just so in the zone. (laughs) Um And also I would put on musicals. I would put on plays where I would dance and sing and all kinds of stuff when I was really little. And then (laughs) how old were you when you sort of 
retreat it? I think probably like around seven. My grandpa was always the person who was like, Tia, Christia, she's going to be a singer. Anytime anyone came around, he would say, this is my granddaughter. She's a beautiful voice. She's going to be a singer. And at first I was like, yeah, I am. And then as I got older, I was like, why does he keep saying that? He's still treating me like a baby. When I'm like 15, I'm like, I'm not going to be a singer. Like, you know, just like it felt like he's just seeing me as a baby still. He passed away last year and my dad would always play him my music and He didn't like all the music that I made. He likes the ballads. That's the type of music he listens to. It really makes me like happy to know that he called that. (laughs) Like He really did. And um, he never stopped saying it. So when were you kind of uh, first aware as a kid that music was transcendental, you know, that it, it could take you somewhere else? That's a really good question. I... I, it's hard to say when, but my father, I think music's the biggest part of his everyday, you know, like rituals. My dad stayed at home and my mom worked for a period of my life when I was really young. Every morning he would get up and like do house stuff and do dishes and would play music. For each task, it would be a specific sort of CD or a specific artist. I think getting familiar with that, using music to totally just transform a mood or like using it to do something specific and also going to Catholic church, the ritual of song, of music with the things that you do kind of just created that sort of like how I see music as transcendental and as esoteric and just spiritual. When did you kind of first learn to play a musical instrument? I don't play a particular instrument. I can dabble with all instruments. And I know my mom would be so frustrated. She's like, don't you want to take piano lessons? And I tried to and was I was too shy. I was like, I was too shy to even just have um, an instructor sit next to me. I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> so how did you kind of bring yourself out of that? It's still always a struggle. It never really fully goes away. But I guess enough of just having to face it over and over. And I think each time when I up the stakes, so, you know, like performing at a sm- in front of a few people used to be so terrifying. And then I did that and then it just keeps going. And so <laughs> I think the biggest challenge was going on tour when I toured with Boy Harsher and having to do back-to-back shows <clears throat> and also be out of my comfort zone of being home mm-hmm. to kind of recalibrate and yeah. reset. So that was the biggest, the biggest milestone. And I think since then it's been like, doing a show or doing something one-off doesn't affect me the same way anymore because (laughs) I know how much worse it could be. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Could you tell me about the scene and how you even found this community? It's obviously really helped you on your musical journey or even to take the first crucial steps into it. It happened gradually. I had a friend, her name is Josephine, and we both started making music around the same time. We both got synthesizers and loop pedals. And at my old house, we decided to throw an event where we could just kind of workshop the skills that we had and kind of teach each other and just practice performing. We were doing that at my house in Oakland. And then I played one show in Sacramento, my first show ever. Mm -hmm. From there, my friend Ryan, who often threw shows around the East Bay, said, you should come play this one next week. And so from there, I think that's where it just all 
the ball got rolling, learning along the way, getting invited to more just house shows, parties, things like that and in, in around Oakland. And mm. that just created an environment where I felt like, oh, everybody's just experimenting. It's just artists wanting to see each other perform, you know, instead of this big audience. So mm. it felt more of like artists playing for other artists. That's such a great way to learn, isn't it? And also gain some confidence. Exactly. It's great to see some of the people I, re- I was meeting at that time still putting out music, like Tyler Holmes. A label here in Oakland called Ratskin Records has some of my favorite artists that are Bay Area locals, like Wizard Apprentice. They're just spectacular artists, inspirations for me. I read somewhere that you sort of started on this musical journey when a good friend of yours passed and you received a, a message that it was time to kind of find your voice. Is that true? Oh, yeah. So this was the same house that I was living at on on Telegraph Avenue. David, my housemate, passed and all of us who were close to him and knew him were really affected. It was just a really it was a tragedy, completely just a wake up call uh, that life is really fleeting. And we were just kind of like jarred into what can we do about continuing this person's legacy. We had a night, he made poetry and art. And so we were reading some of his stuff together and sharing some of his work. And a lot of people like, I always think about this too. What would David do in this situation? He was just the type of person that could flip between any mode or scenario and like be an artist in that realm. So that kind of inspired me to just pick up making music. And I was living in his room because after he passed um, and his stuff was taken, um, I moved into that room because I was going to move back to Sacramento and go to Sac State and thought I was going to be a teacher. It was just this big crossroads in my life. And that moment really changed everything. It was like, why would I do something like teaching that I don't really feel like my heart is in? David wouldn't do that. Like, it was just always in the back of my mind. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to move back into this house. (laughs) I'm going to figure it out. And I was living in his room. So I just felt like really inspired by the spirit of him in there. It's like, you know what? Tunnel vision for a little while. I'm going to like get these instruments. I'm going to work on music and see what happens. What happened was. Spelling recorded an album worth of songs that became her debut, Pantheon of Me. Very much inspired by the loss of her friend, she used nightmarish soundscapes and heightened the sense of foreboding with her layered vocals. It acted like a siren song, leading listeners to a dark other world that was comforting. That was followed with her second album, Maisie Fly. It retained her dark mysticism with chilling sins that could soundtrack the gathering of a coven. But it also showcased her soulful vocals, experimentations into jazz, and her sense of humor. In real fun, she imagined what aliens would think of life on Earth if they arrived and met her dog. For real fun. 
What was it like for you doing that second album? It was a lot of fun. And it's it felt like it happened with a lot more ease than this one did. Um, maybe that's just hindsight <laughs> because I am so, you know, still feeling the labor of this recent work. But, yeah, I felt like it, it definitely is a lot easier to make. You know, it was keeping it simple still with my just my synth and my voice pretty much starting to branch out. You know, I had a studio for the first time at Berkeley. I was just so, so happy to be. I I remember watching this documentary before this was in like 2015 about musicians and like their day to day life. And one of the clips was of Mac DeMarco, Um, Mac DeMarco, like going through his morning routine and it shows him like waking up and then he's like drinking a cup of coffee. He's like, and yeah, and I just drink my coffee and then I might come over to my synth and just, or guitar and practice a few ideas. And I was just like, oh my God, like that's the dream. Like to just, <laughs> to have, that's what you do. Like you get to make music and you have the time to actually do that. And I just didn't think that that would be a reality for me. I'm like, working at a school as a substitute teacher and just like constantly working. And I was like, this is not going to be a reality for me. Um, <laughs> but now <laughs> that I get to do that, sometimes it's like, I just feel like I'm getting to live out a dream. And, and at that time writing Maisie Fly, like I had a studio space. I had that time to do the ritual to like actually invest in my music. So I was just so excited and mm. the eagerness to make, I think made it really, really easy. As much as she enjoyed the process and was grateful that she was living the dream, her music continued to lead her to darker themes. Haunted Water, for example, didn't start because of any desire she had to reflect on race or identity. But once the idea revealed itself to her, she was committed. Haunted Water, knowing the background of the transatlantic slave trade and the Middle Passage and all these things that I was also just finding out myself. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear that now that there was this kind of music 
being made because I feel like, you know, there is a lot, as you say, labor involved in this kind of emotional work. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you writing that particular piece? It's hard to explain because I often feel like it's like channeling that the legacy and the history of my ancestry, all of that, even if it's not a particular song that's about that specifically, it's coming out anyway. It's coming out in everything that I put out. So it's just about sculpting it more. So with Haunted Water, you know, I don't write the lyrics usually first. I don't really even know what the song is going to be about. It's just I wrote that song on a guitar. I don't play guitar really either. I was just messing around with the amp and I created this like droning effect. I'm like, I really love this. This is a mood. I don't know where it's going. It's giving me like water. It's giving me odyssey. It's giving me some sort of bridge bridgeway then I go from there so I just like read the mood out and then the lyrics come later so almost all of the songs can come from that place of deeply personal deeply intimate but also universal I try to speak to the human experience speak to my ancestry speak to my culture Mm. yeah it's just about carving off the other things to make the song individual This tug between the individual and the universal is further teased out in her latest work, The Turning Wheel. Spelling conceived the album as two halves. The first songs are lighter, fairy tale like and about community. The second, or the below half, as she calls it, is darker and has more of a focus on her own individual struggles. She also collaborates with more than 30 musicians on this album, and where once she would employ an army of her own looped vocals, here she introduces other voices. The singularness, like I think when you listen to Pantheon of Me, you could hear that it's me, the individual, and same with Maisie Fly. But with Turning Wheel, I wanted to give it more of this expression of this is like a collective. So I knew that I wanted to have a choir especially with certain songs like Awaken and The Turning Wheel, the above songs. The artist Blood Orange often have other people sing on his track and like it'll jump around a lot. After I had already finished the album, I was listening to Blood Orange, loving that about his work where it feels like it's communal and it's shared. That's something I would want to push even farther for the next thing that I make. Being part of a community that is supportive has been crucial to her art making. All the things that might have made her feel like an outsider when she was growing up were now her strengths. Songwriters can often feel vulnerable when it comes to showing people their unfinished work. But in making Turning Wheel, she felt confident enough to share her demos. When one of her friends called her yet unreleased work, like the soul edition of Alice in Wonderland, Spelling knew she was on the right track. I sent some of the songs when I was first making demos to some people to listen to them. And, you know, they like listened to them and then wrote about each song, just what it reminded them of, like what visuals they were seeing, what popped into their mind as they listened to them. So that was really affirming to get those reflections back because it's exciting that they can be so wildly different. One person can see this or that, um, but to see what kind of things are more universal is also just like, okay, I feel successful that that they're saying Alice in Wonderland because, you know, I want to give off this sort of youthful experience of 
a fairy tale or of this odyssey. So yeah, I felt very affirmed and seen by them saying Alice in Wonderland, the soul edition. I'm like, exactly. Thank you. The track Little Deer calls to mind the place that nature and woodland creatures occupy in our consciousness. It was inspired by Frida Kahlo's self-portrait, The Wounded Deer. The artist depicted herself as a proud stag, bloody and wounded from multiple arrows. It's believed that Carlo's painting alluded to her fate as an artist who had given everything to her work. It also calls to mind Spelling's connection to her own art and that of a fellow Mexican artist. You've talked about the album sort of being in two parts. Yeah. When to start with Little Deer, I, I feel like when I first heard it, I was just immediately, I, I thought of Kate Bush, but also there was something Michael Jackson about the way you were yeah. enunciating certain words. And then when you go to like the higher notes, I'm thinking Minnie Ripperton. And I was like, I just love what she's doing with this, just going to so many different places. You're right on the nail with all of the references. And also I'm thinking about my friend Josephine who said the Alice in Wonderland soul edition when she heard Little Deer, she said like it felt futuristic, but with indigenous roots. And she's like, I don't really know what that means, but how I interpreted that was it's novel. Like it's, it's something new, but sort of folk in that way where it's, it feels familiar. Like I often think about when I make songs that I want them to be things that can be memorable outside of the need for electronic instrumentation. Like I hope that it's something that you can sing. I think that's how folk music is. Like you can pick up a guitar and be able to play that song and it's still just as magical mm. and it's still just as like pure and potent rather than, you know, how electronic music can be. Like you can do so much with it. You can go anywhere you want with technology but I think the I don't know just the the songs that I love the most I feel like you can translate it anyway and it's gonna carry throughout time so I want to write songs like that and I want to write songs that feel like anyone can sing it that was my thought with Little Deer it's speaking to big themes and concepts like it's talking about reincarnation it's talking about karma I wrote the lyrics thinking about the Frida Kahlo painting there's tons of information packed into it and the lyrics are on the more esoteric side but I think that the tune the melody is like I tried to keep it as simple and pure as possible is I think it's one of the tracks that when you walk away after listening to the whole thing it's still playing in my head you know the yeah little dear, little dear. <laughs> <laughs> it's a vibe yeah it is it's such a joy to listen to your work and, and think about where it's coming yeah. from and where it's taking me. The track Future is also a vibe, but this time with a Disney twist.
because it's got like a Disney mood. Yeah, it <laughs> it's, does. Like, it's, it's got like what a Disney character would sing from a tower before they let down their totally. hair, or, or in the woods. Yeah, I call it um, my princess and the frog song. But also in that, that whole kind of. I don't know, it made me think of Octavia Butler and those kinds of stories that Disney has no black characters. I don't know, maybe now they've got one or two or they've got a doll, but it was Afrofuturism that wrote these characters into these stories. And, And I feel like with that song, there's a sense of, time has collapsed into itself and there's like a straight line. Yeah, wow. Um, what came to you first with Future? Was it the soundscapes, the melodies, or the lyrics? Yeah, ooh, that's a good one. I totally was writing from the perspective of being a Disney movie. I think that the, the melody, I was like messing around on my synth, and I'm like, this sounds like it would be a theme song for something. And I recorded it, and then I was preparing for my thesis show at Berkeley. I was going to do a performance at the Berkeley Art Museum, and I wanted to kind of like just do a sort of performance art piece that brought my songs to life with different characters. So mm. I was playing the synth, and then I had these dancers, sort of like movers, acting out the songs. And so I hadn't really even finished with that song yet. The melody came and I was like, this feels like, yeah, this like Disney movie, this kind of play narrative. And I was imagining this bride from the future <laughs> with like, um, <laughs> like, you know, being on a different planet and just like this, I don't know, this time way far in the future where it's like these elements of like love and desire are never going to go away. And um it felt funny to me to kind of like reference that no matter what level of technology we have, there's always still going to be barriers in that way, like between loving somebody and not having it requited or not being able to immediately have like what you want fulfilled, no matter what, if we have like time travel, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There'll still be barriers. Yeah. (laughs) So I just thought it was kind of like funny and went with it. Another song with this whimsical storybook quality is Emperor with an Egg. The emperor with an egg in his feathers. The emperor with his egg, with his treasure, his poetry. emperor with an egg it was like a song which I was like what is it about I was completely stumped I was like where does she start the story this this must be one of the fairy tale ones that I don't know you need to like be Alice in Wonderland to really understand what's going on so when you when you write songs like that do you think about is anyone ever going to understand it and if they can't it's okay I don't think about that too much you know, that's one of the, the songs that came from uh, reading an Ursula Le Guin poem. She's an author that I love, a sci-fi author, and she often writes about animals. She'll put you in a world and you don't know what these creatures or characters are because she'll they'll let them talk as though they're people. And I love that. So 
one of her stories, she's doing that from the perspective of emperor penguins. And yeah, <laughs> I just got into the idea of just the poetry, the idea that like, what is the art making of the animal kingdom? Any sort of entity can be seen in an artistic mm. way and um, the way that they live. And so I was thinking about the conditions of survival, I think would be kind of like the overall concept of that song and just like finding beauty and mm. like and harshness. And I think emperor penguins are kind of like the ultimate <laughs> portrayal of that because they endure so much living in ridiculous conditions. They treat their young with like so much intimacy and care, like with, with their egg. And it's like their treasure in this like vast white chaos. romanticize things like that and I think about it as a metaphor for creation for um, perseverance and having something that is special to you and sacrificing for it you know that's what that song is about I was like is it a parable of some kind it must yeah. be but I can't find the hidden key but then I could just enjoy it for when you say I can feel a, a leopard seal <laughs> I can feel a leopard seal Oh, I can feel A leopard seal I'm just like priceless. <laughs> That's where I was like, I'm really going to hammer it in Like, in case you didn't Get it It's about a penguin <laughs> There is a clear change of pace as we cross over into the below half of the album with the song Boys at School. When you dropped Boys at School, um, your second single on your Instagram, you said that that song is particularly sacred to you and writing it helped you uncover mysterious parts of yourself and befriend them again. Where was your head at when you wrote that song? It's very, it's very complicated to to put into words. I guess, I guess that coming out of writing it felt like the act of making it, really putting myself back into that position of being a young person where you're just starting to sort of understand what it means to need people to see yourself outside of being a child, starting to develop your own voice. Just the pain of that, the pain of growing up and facing the mirror of yourself. This is who I am. And like, it's a big growing pain of that time. And I don't want to go all the way into it. It's hard to even like reference exactly what, but just like mm. the angst of that time where it's like angst. I think the thing about angst is it's so hard to, to pinpoint. And that's what makes the feeling like this like frustrating thing. It's everything at once. Mm. I don't know. Like you grow up, like you get, you get over the angst, like you get over that frustration. And sometimes I think it's important like 
revisit that, to feel bothered, to feel like upset, to feel that you're alive in that way. And um, so going back into the, the song, like re sort of put me back into that rebellious sort of state of mind. It felt good. <laughs> it felt cathartic. Spelling excels at world building. The mere title of a song, Queen of Wands, paints a picture of wizards and magic. Like the turning wheel, it's a symbolic card that you can pull from a tarot deck. It encourages one to not be afraid to own one's power. The music sounds like it's been sound designed for a science fiction movie, a scene where the warlord is about to be overthrown by a magical queen. As the disco-inspired synths fade up, you might imagine a heroine clad in glitter arriving in a spaceship ready to save the day. Listening to the whole album, it also made me think of the connection with George Clinton and the Parliament and the Funkadelic from the 60s, 70s. That, that made me think of mythology and, and like Afrofuturist imaginings of a different world, that kind of context that you're accessing this different world that, you know, is, is not here. And, and when I listen to it, it makes me get involved in that imagining of another world that sort of music was that played in your house as you were growing up did you come into contact with it in a big way the aesthetics of that time definitely parliament funkadelic i think about the way that they would dress and like the way that their concert looks and like the aesthetic of the futurism like all of that was in my mind mm. Not necessarily the music, but I do latch onto things very easily. So that's why I'm really guarded about what I listen to when I'm writing. Just it, the influence always just creeps up in there. <laughs> so I can't remember what I was listening to when I was writing Queen of Wands, but the the energy of that that era of like, you know, creating a the like Parliament Funkadelic, like the whole project is this, this vision of music as a way to transcend mm. music as a vehicle, literally like as a spaceship to kind of just like leave Earth to transcend the Earth to mm -hmm. create joy and like music as a vehicle for people to express themselves without um, oppression. So you can just see it from the aesthetic itself without even listening to the music. You can absorb that. I think anybody can and. I'm definitely in influenced by that. And like, you know, figures like Sun Ra also, I think, fits in that bracket of music and um, outer space, you know, like <laughs> physically and mentally just understanding that this is from a place, a personal place of being a Black American, that our link, our like relationship to music has always been a source of freedom, of liberation, of uh, transcendence when there's so many oppressive and violent forces at work to prevent that. So music has always been like mm -hmm. the tool for not just escape, but of like empowerment, of of travel, of just transcending. So I take that 
to heart, I think, with, with what I make. And I wouldn't call my music Afrofuturism or like even my aesthetic that, but it is in my heart and it is thing I think about when I make and hope people can absorb that and feel like inspired and empowered by it. One of the other songs that I, I loved was Revolution. I feel like that song encapsulates a lot of what your songs do for me because sometimes I feel like they've got this surprising quality. They, they start one place and then you literally time travel and end up somewhere completely different. And then when you say, I'm in a permanent revolution, it feels almost like a mantra. Um, I, and I wondered what those words mean for you. And this is twofold. And the other part is like towards the end, it goes to so many different places. There's this kind of quite dramatic shift where there's this the brass. Yeah, I love that. It's kind of advocating like Bowie's Black Star. Yes. And then it becomes like this jazz piano solo and then it just like takes yeah. me back to a whole different area again. And then there's like an outro, which it sounds like it might be a, a protest march. Mm. It was like so many different ideas. And when I thought about Bowie and Black Star, I thought of like just life as revolution. It's like a struggle. It's all the time. You never get to a point where you are just, okay, I did all the work I need to do. Mm -hmm. I'm like reach nirvana yeah. as a being. <laughs> so anyway, what does, I'm in a permanent revolution. What do those words mean for you? I love that you're referencing Black Star. I love that album. And it's just such a trip to me that David Bowie made that album at that late stage in his career because it feels still really futuristic he's still ahead of his time mm. but yeah that's a side note and um curious also is that I was listening to this song by him called I'm deranged it's from the movie Lost Highway that's a mm. David Lynch movie I love that movie and the song I'm deranged is the intro for that movie and it's like shows this freeway and it's like spotlight and it's like just as though this car is like endlessly driving along the freeway. It's super weird. Like it just starts out of nowhere and it's this really quick drum machine beat. There's chaotic piano. So that was like kind of my reference song mm -hmm. as I was deciding how the song would turn, like what it would shift to at that end portion. That was kind of the reference. I want it to sound like this never-ending freeway mm -hmm. and my partner Eric he hates that song he's like this song is so chaotic like I don't understand it just sounds like a mess and I'm like <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much I think it's like it's kind of got that like 80s-ness that's really sort of cheesy and maybe trying to do too much with all of the sounds at the same time but I love it aside from that musically with the concept that song is about work. It's about not allowing yourself to be defeated by um, the demands of having to be defined by your labor. Like everyone has to find a way to survive. And oftentimes like what you do for work is how you define yourself. It can become that way and it can become really um, 
draining and Mm -hmm. I feel like you can lose track of yourself or like the dreams that you had or just sort of like the spirit of anything is possible still like that can dwindle and there's a lot of factors at work that (laughs) make it that way you know um I don't think we live in a sort of society that tries to nurture our greatest virtues and like nurture our greatest talents. It's more of exploit the talent, exploit any opportunity for capital. Those are all of the things I was thinking about as I made that and personally how I think when you think about revolution, about this like idea of radical change that you want either for your personal life or for the world or for a community revolution is only one aspect of it. It's it's something that has to continue. It's not necessarily like this is like never ending, but just that desire. How do you keep that um, fire inside of you that says, I won't give up on myself. I won't conform to these demands. I wanted it to kind of be an anthem about that. You make very, very interesting music. You obviously always had that desire to sing and you know, somewhere along the line, the shine has kind of shut it down for you and, and, and you've started to like really blossom again and, and come into your own. But why do you make music now and this sort of music that not necessarily everybody's going to flock to listen mm-hmm. to? I do it for myself. I do it because I feel like for the first time since making music I just feel directed like I feel like I know what I'm leaving for the world like this is my contribution this is something that is beyond myself I'm doing it for that reason and um, it just brings me joy and what I love about music it's just infinite like there's always going to be another combination it's never going to like run out as long as I have my faculties (laughs) and it'll be a lifelong learning process and I think There's a lot of people who want to hear the music that I make that maybe like the mainstream music isn't quite cutting for them. And I love to hear when people say that it's helped them stay inspired um, from a place of maybe a dark time or just feeling you need that sense of comfort, feeling like um, wanting to be in a different dimension. And I hope that my my music can help you kind of just escape the reality of Earth sometimes like. It helps me to escape when I need it, when I'm making it, when I'm like lost in my headphones and get to live in there. So I want it to go to that fantastical place where it's like, you can live in here for a while and just become one with the music in that way. You want to set out for You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Christia Cabral of Spelling. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azane Samari. Media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward with additional help from Wendy Redfern. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis-Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. 
If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time. Oh.